Vaxi's Musical Podcast. Hey, everybody, it's Bax, and thanks for tuning in to Baxi's Musical Podcast. So my guest today, Mark Wasserman, the author of the book Ska Boom. Now, one of the things you're going to hear today is how fans of ska, reggae, and two-tone all arrived at this incredible music and how it sunk its teeth into our souls and how we never let it go and how we allowed it to happen. Mark's got his story. I have mine. And mine starts off something like this. It's 1984, and while most of the essential UK ska bands like The Specials and Madness and The Selector were essentially finishing up their early run and moving on to different things in 1979, 1981. I decided to go on a road trip with a fistful of cassettes and a cheap battery-powered boombox. And as it turns out, I only needed one of those tapes. Side one, you had Just Can't Stop It by The English Beat. And on the other side, their third album, Special Beat Service. For six straight hours, I did nothing but listen to those albums over and over again. And that was my first real true introduction to two-tone ska. And when I got to where I was going, I stopped by a Strawberries record shop and bought the first album by The Specials. Now I had three cassettes for the ride home, and by the end of the trip, I was totally hooked. I got rid of the tapes, replaced them with vinyl. I bought The Specials, The Beat, The Madness, The Selector, The Bad Manners. I bought the Dance Craze soundtrack, a few other compilations too. I was, in fact, officially hooked. And while I finished buying all of the available two-tone ska that I could get my hands on, I started to listen to other bands like Fishbone, The Toasters, Bim Scala Bim, and The Untouchables. And as it turns out, the American stuff from the mid-'80s was actually pretty damn good too. And as it turns out, ska bands were popping up all over the place, especially in New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. And by the 1990s, ska would resurface once again, reaching their commercial peak with bands like Operation Ivy, which would later become Rancid, Sublime, Real Big Fish, No Doubt, The Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Suddenly, ska was becoming a commercially viable entity in the United States, more than a decade after Two-Tone was ripping through charts in the UK. My guest today, Mark Wasserman, is one of the country's foremost experts in ska, having not only formed the first ska band in New Jersey in the 1980s, he's also written a new book entitled Ska Boom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History. Mark has not only compiled interviews with hundreds of musicians, he's also the host of the Ska Boom podcast, which is excellent. And today we're going to talk about all that stuff with my guest today, author Mark Wasserman on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Good to see you. Good to see you too. I was this close to wearing a pork pie hat and some braces and my Doc Martens just hurt my feet. So I said, nah, to hell with it. Maybe not today. <laughs> be comfortable. Yeah, I want to be comfortable. Exactly. About halfway through Ska Boom. Uh, I re- well, I, I appreciate that because I, I realize it's a very, very long book. It's a, it's a long book, but it's really cool because I think anyone who, who enjoys Ska on any level, whether it's two-tone or, or the American stuff, you know, everyone seems to come about discovering ska in their own way. And I think that's a real cool thing about that genre. It certainly did to me. And, you know, once it sinks its meat hooks into you, it's the kind of genre that never really 
never really leaves you, never lets go. Uh, 100% agree. I've been uh, listening to it since I was 14 years old, and I'm 57 now, so there you go. <laughs> years ago, I was home from, uh, from college, and I, and I made this road trip to go visit a friend. And I had borrowed like a fistful of cassettes from, a, from another friend of mine. And uh, all I had was like an AM radio and any cassette player in the car. And I had this real cheap, shitty boom box. And I wound up playing this <laughs> out of the six cassettes I brought. I wound up playing one cassette for the entire trip. And on one side, it was uh, the English beat. Just can't stop it. On the other side, it was special beat service. And I just let it continue to run over and over and over again. And it wasn't like I was unfamiliar with the music, but it was like at that moment, it was like, okay, this, this is really something very special. Wow. Well, I'm, I have to laugh because I had that same boom box, I guess, you know, I had a, <laughs> I had an old beater of a car and it only had an AM radio. So the only way I was going to be able to listen to my music was I had the little boom box next to me on the seat. So I, I know that well. So tell me how it, uh, how it landed for, for you. I mean, I, you talk about it in the introduction of your book, but how did ska present itself to you? Well, I grew up from, from a very young age. I've always loved music. Uh, my parents played a lot of music in the house. They had albums. I played those albums. Uh, you know, Carole King, The Beatles, uh, Fifth Dimension, things like that, you know. But when we lived, we lived in Massachusetts at one point. My dad got moved around a lot for his job. Uh, there was a, uh, in Medfield, Mass, there was a um, five and dime. And in that five and dime, there was a little section of the store that had 45 singles. I mean, you have to be a certain age, I think, to, to remember this. But my mom would take me and my sister there once a week, and she they were a dollar for a 45, and she'd give me a dollar, and I was allowed to pick out one 45 every week. And I built up quite a collection, but that started me into like appreciating records and, and music and storytelling and songs. Uh, so that's where my, my passion for music started, and then sort of discovered the radio and listening to to AM radio mostly, I live mostly in New Jersey. So WABC was huge down here. So it was top 40 radio. But um, I had a friend right before freshman year of high school. So that was 1979 for me, who um, invited me over one day. He said, I got to play you this record. And it was the special's first record. And um, <laughs> I describe it as a lightning bolt moment. He put that record on and I had literally never heard anything like that before. And um, it lit up all the neurons in my brain. And that was sort of my gateway into two-tone, but also into ska and reggae music. But that, that was the first, the first time I'd ever heard anything. And I remember being a little bit afraid because I was so unlike anything I'd ever heard. Couldn't really understand what they were singing about. The guitars were a little bit louder than the, the music I was listening to on AM radio and disco that was popular at the time. But there was just something about it that grabbed me. Yeah. So that, that was really how it all started. It did the same thing for me, too. You know, obviously, it starts with the, the English beat for me. But then, you know, I had a friend say, well, then you need to listen to the specials. And as soon as it, there was that, well, you should listen to the selector, too. And, you know, everybody, when I was in high school, we knew Madness, but we knew Madness almost like a pop band. Like, you know, Our House was a pop song. Didn't feel like a like they were a ska band anymore i mean a, a good bulk of what they were doing certainly was but much like you as i'm going to record stores once a week i'm uh, i'm finding myself looking for two-tone compilations and anything i can get my hands on because it was such a limited amount of those bands to begin with and then these compilations came out dance craze was one of the first ones that i got and at that point it became a little bit easier and you almost wished that there was more of it which would come 
later on and, and how it wound up sinking into American music. But nevertheless, that those those early days of me buying those records were really exciting. I got real fixated on that stuff right away. You and I sound very similar in that regard. You had to sort of be a musical detective. And um, I have to pay respects to certain clerks at record stores. They didn't suffer fools very well. But mm-hmm. if you actually would say to somebody like you did, hey, I really like this record by the specials. Is there anything else like this that you could recommend? A couple guys pointed me in the right direction. That's how I discovered the English beat. That's how I discovered the selector. And then you sort of took it from there. You just like, you know, as you said, you just scoured record stores. There's black and white check on this. Is that a star record? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. So, you know, that was part of the fun of like, sometimes you'd hit on something and sometimes you'd hit a dog. But, you know, <laughs> it was all part of that experience of, of enriching and en- enlarging your musical palette. I had a chance to talk to uh, Horace Panther and, and Dave Wakeling about ska and their, and their perspective is you know, very, very similar. Cause you ask about like about the two tone movement and you know, it starts with Jerry Dammers of the specials. And what's really fascinating is at that time in England, you didn't see a lot of integration in between bands. You didn't see anybody that looked like, you know, Pauline black and the selector. You absolutely didn't see anybody look like bad manners. And that's probably, for, probably for good reason, but the music was rooted in, interesting level of diversity both racial and 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 sexual and i think the importance of that was pretty profound 100 um you know i like to say it was a little bit like uh early days of hip-hop here in america that's what two-tone was like for england it was um people living on the front lines in inner cities like birmingham and london and it's taking those experiences and putting them to music uh that really connected with working class kids all over England and that, you know, then that sort of traveled over here. Some of that got lost in translation because obviously the American experience and the British experience are different, but what you you find happening and really what's documented in my book is there are a lot of people like you and me who had that experience of really being turned on to two-tone and then saying, well, I want to start a band that sounds like this. And so, you know, I, I talk about, I think literally every person I interviewed in my book, and I, I interviewed a lot of people, they all mentioned the specials and the English beat. So those two bands sort of hover over every single American band that started in the late 70s and early 80s. They were all influenced by hearing those records and the messages in those records, and then taking that and trying to create an American version of that around what they pulled from those records. You also talk in the, in the book about starting your own ska band you know, many years ago. And actually starting the first ska band in New Jersey, which I think is, is very, very cool. But, you know, as I'm, as I was reading this, I'm thinking, well, how did you find other like-minded people to play with? Because, you know, ska, unless you've heard it, it's a very challenging type of rhythm to get down in the ways you play, you know, bass or organ or whatever. It's, it's very different. How did you find people to, to play with you in the, I don't know, was Bigger Thomas the first, the first ska uh, band? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Bigger Thomas. We were called Panic originally. Uh, we had to change our name because there was a heavy metal band from Seattle with that name. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting, you know, in pre-internet days, there were different ways that you connected with people. When we started Bigger Thomas, it was me and the guitar player. We had spent a lot of time woodshedding in his tiny little apartment uh, in New Brunswick, New Jersey, writing these songs. We didn't have a band. We didn't have a singer or anything like that. So I made a flyers and I, we lived, I lived in New Brunswick, which is where Rutgers University is, the State University of New Jersey. And I just put these flyers up on, on campus buses, 
bus stops all over the campus. And it was through hook or by crook that we ended up with this very motley crew of seven people. Uh, some of us were students, some of, them, some of the guys were townies. And we had different levels of musicianship, but we all had a passion for, for ska and reggae. It was kind of amazing that everybody kind of knew what it was and how to play it. And that's, that's how we started. We started banging songs out in, in the basement of the house I lived in in New Brunswick. One of the things that I, I asked both Horace and, uh, and Dave Wakeling was, because this is something that, you know, I think is really interesting and, and shows this almost, it's not a hypocritical thing by, by any means, but just shows the diversity of the audience who were listening to ska, especially in England. At the time it first came out, it was a, a, a genre of music that tended to appeal to skinheads. And yet you had this diversity, which wound up chipping away at that. You know, it's hard to imagine those bands without Ranking Roger or, you know, Linval Golding or, uh, you, know, you know, Everett Morton. The fact of the matter is when 1979, 1980, it was pretty shocking to see those that kind of diversity and to play in front of people that have literally no tolerance for that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Um I think in in cities like London and Coventry and Birmingham, it was very common for black and white people to live next door to one another. So it wasn't such a a big deal when you would see mixed bands in England. Now, when those bands came over here, they were struck by how uh, Americans found it very strange that there were interracial bands. That was not part of our experience here. You know, you had rock bands and you had Motown and everybody sort of stayed in their own lane. So... Again, one of the things that, that came through in my book when I interviewed all these folks was that two-tone sort of became an organizing philosophy for a lot of kids. It was for me that we were like, well, if these guys can do it, why can't we do it? Like, why can't we address some of the issues with racial segregation and racism here in America? And what better way to do that than to have mixed bands where we're sort of showing uh, audiences, hey, it's really not that hard uh, to do this. And actually, when you bring together different people's experiences and their musical interests, you can actually create something really fresh and new. It, it's interesting that when you, when you go through each band in, in the book, you know, everyone from the box boys to Hooters to the blue rhythm band and, and, and the others that, that, that get talked about is American record companies simply did not know what the hell to do with these bands. I mean, you know, obviously you're talking about bands with, with, with you know, great potential. They had really good songs. Some of these bands were very true to the music, but as soon as, these record companies tried to figure out how to market them properly. All of a sudden there seemed to be this, this intervention of their ideas that wind up taking a lot of bands kind of way off track. I mean, like you mentioned like the band and I really didn't even think of them as a ska band, but the Hooters were one of the bands that you talk about in the book. And I guess when I think about all you zombies, like, I mean, I don't think of that as a ska song, but in the book I'm saying, okay, all right, maybe, but that was a band that seemed to have some sort of, I don't know, overbearing process above them, kind of steering them in a more pop direction than what I think they really wanted to be. And that sounds like a recurring theme over and over again. Yeah, very much so. Um, there's another chapter in the book about a band called The Shakers, who were probably the very first American reggae band. They built a huge following in Berkeley, California. They sold out this club every Sunday night for a year. And there was a bidding war to sign them. They were signed to uh, by David Geffen, believe it or not, to Electra Asylum. And then the record label had no idea what to do to them. They sort of tried to change them into like um, a, a vacation-y Beach Boys. But that was not what these guys wanted to do. These guys were a reggae band. So yes, you're right. 
that happened again with the Hooters, who built a whole humongous following around where I live in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, playing ska music, believe it or not, and became huge and uh, were signed to CBS. And CBS basically said, listen, we need to bring you to the center here a little bit because we're going to get you on the radio. So All You Zombies, if you listen to the original version of All You Zombies, it's a straight up reggae song. Yeah. But the version that was put on that CBS record was more rock yeah. than reggae. And, you know, that's sort of what the compromise was in order to be signed to a major label. One of the uh, the chapters, I was so happy to read this one that you were including them in this book, was was The Untouchables. Yeah, that's a band I remember you know, playing in college, in college radio. And, you know, it's right about the same time that Fishbone was coming out in 1985, 86, somewhere around there. And I, I just remember the songs by the Untouchables and thinking, my God, this is such a great record. And it was always one of these things where, well, what happened to them? I know they had other records, but it felt very much like it was a one and done thing with them. Tell me about about the Untouchables. Yeah, well, the Untouchables story was probably the one that I... Uh enjoyed writing the most and felt the most passionate about because in my mind, they're the first American ska band. If you ask the guys in the band, they would actually call themselves mods. They mixed sort of like the who uh, with uh, Northern soul and Motown and threw some two-tone in it. But they're, in my opinion, a straight up first American ska band. And they created a huge buzz in LA. They're responsible essentially for making California sort of the epicenter of American ska. They built a scene around this little club called the On Club in LA, and they just sold out everywhere they went, sort of like the Hooters in Philadelphia, but on a much larger scale in Southern California. And they couldn't get signed to save their lives by, by an American label. It was a British label, Stiff Records, that actually mm-hmm. signed them, uh, and then took them over to England and tried to turn them into a replacement for Madness. You mentioned Madness earlier. They had just lost Madness. Uh, Madness had jumped from Stiff to uh, a a larger, bigger label. So Dave Robinson, the president of Stiff, thought the Untouchables would be his replacement for Madness. It it didn't work out that well for them, but they were very popular in Europe and they they played sold out shows all over Europe in England, Germany, France, Italy. But when they came back to America, nobody, again, this dichotomy between how Europeans and Brits look at this type of music and Americans do. When they came back to the U.S., they were on MCA at that point. The execs at MCA had no idea what to do with them, and they just sort of disappeared, sadly. But yeah. they had, I think they had a lot more to say and more good music to make. And they were great musicians, too. I mean, I, I never got a chance to see them live, but I remember the videos and thinking, okay, they remind me very much of what Fishbone was. Fishbone, to this day, I think is maybe the greatest live band I've ever seen. And I've probably seen them a, a, a dozen times. And, you know, Ska fits into into their early development. They would become very different uh, as years would go by. And I know Norwood Fisher was interviewed a couple of times, and especially in, in light of uh, of the Untouchables. But those kinds of bands, when they when they were performing live, I mean, the crowds were going crazy over those bands. Right. And And, you know, in California, they could do no wrong. The Untouchables and Fishbone, who were totally influenced by The Untouchables, were like teenagers who would go and see The Untouchables play and were inspired by them to start Fishbone. Um, And there's a lot of love between the guys in both those bands because of the connection they had where Fishbone got to open shows for The Untouchables. But um, yeah, sadly, both those bands, you know, I'm a huge fan of Fishbone, too. I still don't think they've gotten the credit they're due for, for their musicianship 
and how diverse they are in the in the type of songs that they write. Some of my, like I said, I've seen them a bunch of times, and every time I've seen them, there's always been a, there's always been some sort of story. And the one that I will will never ever forget, they were playing in an amphitheater in uh, in Milwaukee. I was uh, going to school out there, and uh, they opened in this amphitheater for the Violent Femmes. Now. It, to me, that is like, I can't imagine a band saying, hey, you know what? We should get the, the fishbone to open for us. And then we should see how we do after them. Because, like, they just completely mop the floor. And then, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, the, the Violent Femmes are on the stage. And they're, you know, thinking around on their on their instruments. It was just like the most bizarre. You can't follow a band like that. You just can't. You know, it's, it's funny you say that. Um, uh, there's a band in my book called The Uptones who yep. were the, the first ska bands from Northern California, from San Francisco. And uh, they related a similar story to me where they played a couple shows with Fishbone and they learned the hard way uh, that you never let Fishbone open for you. Because <laughs> there's no compa- there's just no way to compete. No, absolutely not. One of the bands that, that I, uh, I was a fan of for, for a period of time was the, uh, was the Toasters. That's another uh, band that you talked about. Tell me a little bit about them because their their story is, is is kind of interesting because you know to me they're like you know the toasters and and, and Bim Scala Bim you know they they seem to open the door for what would come up later in the '90s but but the toasters are a pretty interesting example. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, some of those bands we've been talking about were in the late '70s and early '80s before ska started to get traction. Um, it was the toasters and Bim Scala Bim who kicked the door open. Really, they were pioneers. Um, the Toasters were the first American band to tour across the U.S. Uh, they were they put their first album out independently, and it did very well. And Rob Hingley, who still performs, is now in his mid sixties. He just uh, was on tour a couple weeks ago. Um, he was a um, a Brit who came over to to help run a comic book store in New York. He loved ska and reggae, and he tried to start a band. And the first couple times he just couldn't find Americans who could play ska you mentioned earlier it's a it's a it's a strange beat if you're not familiar with it the drums in particular the bass line's different but he taught some of these people how to play and then he just built kind of the New York City ska scene that I came up in. yeah he was sort of like the godfather and um he would let younger bands open for the toasters and just open doors for so many people so he deserves and the toasters deserve a lot of credit um, like the Untouchables and Fishbone was sort of um, being innovators and really passionate pioneers. I throw Bim Scala Bim on that as well. Bands and members of those bands who are willing to get in a van and for three months drive from the East Coast to the West Coast and back and play a show literally every day wherever they could. Yeah. Um, and it was because of that work that they did that they opened the doors for many, many bands that followed. You had uh, you had mentioned uh, the Untouchables thinking of themselves as uh, as mods, and it, it, it's it's interesting that 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 came up in the book because it's there's a couple of things that that seem to be kind of like touchstones with uh, with ska, not just in England but but certainly here in America. Quadrophenia would be would be one of them. A movie literally about mods, but then also the movie Dance Craze, you know, inspired a lot of people here and 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 elsewhere. The Harder They Come soundtrack also, uh, you know, you had, you know, Jimmy Cliff and, you know, Toots and the Maytals and, and, uh, and, and, and these kinds of touchstones seems to seem to be among the things that inspired all these guys. 
not just the, the the music but the but the look of ska is a, you know is a pretty interesting you know part of the whole of the whole connection the whole scene very very important part because again um pre-internet where did you get information how did you learn things um you couldn't just type on your computer mods so um quadrophenia was huge not only is it a great story but the, the looks the fashion the way the guys dressed was huge you know and then you, you use that as a as a guide a blueprint then you got to go find that stuff and you know in the late 70s and early 80s it wasn't easy to find a pork pie hat or um <laughs> a, a black suit you know or doc martin boots or any of that stuff so um again you just spent hours in um thrift stores or salvation army stores just looking for like 60s suits or 60s looks so that was a huge part of it but also you you mentioned dance craze and the harder they come that was really about for many of us particularly american kids um those bands didn't have mtv videos so the no. only way you were going to see them was if you were lucky enough to see that movie in the movie theater and it was only there for like a week so i remember my friends and i used to pass around a bootleg copy of a vhs copy of um of uh, dance craze uh you know and so that's how and it was like three three generations so it wasn't the greatest quality but those were there was that stuff was so important to us because it gave us a bit of a guide when when otherwise we were sort of lost in the, in in the wilderness so i was a fan of you know the specials like like you were but i think when i heard that soundtrack of 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 the specials on dance craze that's when i really started to pay real close attention to because you know to me the the versions of uh, of 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 gangsters uh, it just was like it just seems so much more powerful. And even when I talked to, to Horace Panther about it, he said, you know, I wish more people could have seen us live in our, in our heyday, because I mean, there are plenty of people who will hear, you know, Ellis Costello's production of that first record and say, man, he could have done so much more, but yet that's the sound that they really wanted on that record, which I thought was really interesting because a lot of people tend to have a problem with the Elvis Costello production. Yeah, I think, I understand that criticism and yet you're right. It's hard to take a band who are explosive on stage and put them in a studio and capture that explosiveness. Sometimes the studio can confine you and depending upon who your producer is, that has a lot of, of an effect on what that ultimate uh, final produced sound is. I still think that Elvis Costello produced album is great, but I a hundred percent agree with you that uh, hearing them on uh, dance craze is like a revelation. It is just like they are somebody lit them and they explode mm-hmm. like the power and the energy of the versions of those songs. It, it really doesn't compare to the album versions. I appreciate them both. We, we talked earlier about like, you know, record label into intervention and changing sounds. Many of these bands, you know, wind up changing their sounds in the, in the eighties. I mean, I'm thinking in terms of like with the specials like fun boy three or, you know, general public and madness, they became more pop centered rather than, than ska centered as they kind of transformed into other things. You'll find young cannibals, for example. And I wonder if, if you know the answer to this, whether that was because of the same kind of record label intervention, or did they feel like they were confined by ska and, and needed to, to branch out into, into new territory? That's a really interesting question. You know, um, I've started to work on my next, uh, book. I'm, I've uh, submitted a proposal uh, for the 33 and a third series. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's these, um, each book is about an album. So if I'm lucky enough to be selected, um, I'm going to be writing a book about special beat service, which is a, a mm. huge 
album of mine I love uh, very much. Um, so I have been uh, really researching that album a lot, reading a lot of archival interviews with all the members of, of the English Beat, Dave Wakeling, Rankin Roger, uh, um, David Cox, uh, sorry, Andy Cox and David Steele. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. The English Beat had three very distinct albums and three very distinct sounds. They couldn't be confined. They were very uh, into whatever their latest um, interests were musically, whatever their latest influences were. Uh, and I think that's the beauty behind them. But also, you know, um, their star in England started to wane a little bit uh, after their second album will happen. And um, they were signed here in the US to IRS Records, who are very traditional, you know, a, a upstart American label. Um, and American audiences were looking, I think, for something a little bit different. And I think the band at that point were, were experimenting. And, you know, if you listen to, you're, you're a fan of Special Beat Service, there's a lot going on on that record. It's almost like a kitchen sink of everybody's influences. There's reggae, there's ska, there's Motown, there's soul, um, there's Latin music on there. And um, unfortunately, they broke up before I think they could have taken that album a little bit further. Uh, I, it, it was really starting to make inroads here. It was, there were videos on MTV. They, they played two of the US festivals, which is a big Gen X thing. You know, if you're a Gen X or you know who, what the US festival is, they were the only band to be invited to play there twice. They were on American Bandstand. So all these things were happening to make the English beat stars. And um, they decided to pull the plug before I think they could see that through to fruition. But the, the, um, the evidence is that the Fine Young Cannibals sort of ended up having the success that I think the English beat could have had if they had stayed yeah. together. Yeah. It's uh, at, at the time, you know, I know a lot of people kind of questioned the second record by English beat, what happened. Uh, but I think that album is actually aged better than the other two. I, I, I find myself reaching for that one a little bit more in the last, you know, five or six years, because this there's, to me, there's some gems on that record that really never got the attention that the other two did. I, I, all three records are great, but that one's starting to really grow on me in a real profound way. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there's a, a maturity about that record that maybe when we were teenagers or in our 20s, we couldn't appreciate some of the themes that are raised in it. You know, there's some dark stuff on that on that record, but it's it's presented in such a joyful way. The sounds are, are, are fantastic. And special beat service, the same for me. It came a, a, along at a time where I was, you know, a, a getting ready to graduate from high school and figuring out what it meant to be an adult. And there were a lot of themes on that record. So, you know, I don't think the English beat ever played by the rules of here's what a ska band is supposed to sound like or look like. Um, and that's one of the things that so many of us really loved about them. You know, they had Ranking Roger was 17 years old when he joined um, the beat and Saxa was in his 50s. Yeah. So you had such a crazy mixed diversity of, and I think that's always been reflected in in their sounds. So in the 90s, there's another wave of of ska that uh, that comes. I mean, you had Operation Ivy, which eventually becomes you know Rancid and Sublime and Real Big Fish, and you know, no doubt for that matter. Obviously, this is where in, when ska starts to reach a commercial peak here in the United States, and suddenly record companies seem to start to understand where this music falls or, you know, they finally seem to understand how to market these, uh, these artists correctly. Do you think that was what made that third wave work? Yeah. I, I, I think there were a couple things going on. First of all, again, 
going back to the Toasters and Vim Scala Vim, two bands who opened the doors and did a lot of the legwork that, that benefited the bands you just mentioned. So without the Toasters and Vim Scala Vim uh, touring and bringing these bands along with them to open, you, you're not, those bands aren't gonna have a, a chance. I think the other thing that happened was that uh, record labels started to hire people who were fans of ska um, and they knew what it was and they knew that it was marketable because they'd been at shows that were considered underground where there were like 3000 kids dancing to the untouchables or um, you know, 500 kids in North Dakota dancing to the toasters and they're like, hmm, there's something going on here. You know, selling out shows in Chicago, LA, and New York, and not getting any coverage, but that there's a grassroots thing going. And I think that had a lot to do. All those things combined had a lot to do. And um, you had MTV, you know, Gwen Stefani, attractive woman, uh, great voice, uh, videos that, that connected with a very broad audience. Um, so certain people, smart people at record labels started to put it together. How can we market this music and, and make it um, popular. And so it had, yeah, you're right. This, this third wave of Skaz, it's called from like 95 to about 97 was, was really had its peak. I had a, uh, an old producer uh, uh, of mine was a huge Ska fan, like bigger than maybe anyone I've, I've, I've ever known. But, you know, while that wave was going on, you know, he was introducing me to, you know, like let's go bowling or uh, uh, Mephiscopheles and, 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 and bands like that. And, and, yeah, it was nice to see that 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 genre wasn't necessarily just going for a big payday. There were some that were going to be true to ska, and that was kind of fun to to know that it, that it's still out there and that the the torch for ska is still burning pretty damn brightly. Yeah, it's funny. Both those bands you mentioned I, I, are in are in my book, and they both took different approaches, but did it their own way. So, let's go bowling. Never had a lead singer, mostly instrumental. <laughs> Uh, worship the Scottalites, and that was their deal. Mephiscopheles, um, you know, we're going to be the first Satan worshiping ska band. A, a, <laughs> just such a such a clever way to market themselves, and and created like metal ska, I guess. Yeah. Um, but both bands, you know, true to love, both love ska, but but did it in different ways. And to me, that's sort of the ingenuity of American ska was that musicians here took what two-tone and 60s and 70s reggae gave them and did something new by incorporating all these different sounds, punk, hardcore, metal, uh, and created something fresh and new. I think it's one of the, the reasons why, you know, I look, I listen occasionally to the, uh, to the Operation Ivy records. And uh, they, I mean, there wasn't a lot produced, but it was like one of those bands that you, you hear it and, and that, was, that was a hell of a band. You know, they would obviously become rancid and get, fairly popular and have a great career, but that was like a record that was exactly what you're talking about. An amalgamation of, of metal and ska that at that point, I don't think really had been done before, at least not to that, you know, level of success. Right. Operation Ivy. And I'd say mighty, mighty boss tunes. Yeah. uh, Both in similar ways, but in different places sort of took punk and hardcore and metal and sort of mixed it with ska. And then the, the great thing about both those bands who got huge was, in, in the case of Operation Ivy, they were huge fans of the Uptones. Uh, they were a couple of years younger than the guys in the Uptones and were at every Uptones show. So they worshipped the Uptones and that was an influence on them. And the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones were huge fans of Bim Scala Bim and worshipped Bim Scala Bim. So that was what I enjoyed most about this book was 
making sure that people understood that it didn't start with uh, Rancid and the Mighty Mighty Boston's. It started with these other bands and these people who you think are the greatest American ska musicians actually were influenced by all these other bands you might not have heard of before. You, uh, you wound up interviewing a hell of a lot of people for this book uh, and a diverse uh, amount of people, like, you know, people who um, you wouldn't necessarily have, you know, attached to other to other bands. Were people pretty easily, uh, you know, convinced to, to participate? I mean, or was, or, or did you have to fight real hard to get a few on there? No, uh, I would say 99% of the people that I approached were happy to speak with me. Everybody likes to talk about themselves. So that's, that's <laughs> one of the, the things I had going for me. But I also approached this um, with my own passion and told them stories about why their bands meant something to me. And listen, you don't go into ska music to make money. You go into it because you love it. Right. And if you have other people telling you that they love what you've done, that makes you feel like it was all worth it. So, though, you know, that that helped a lot. But yeah, it, it was a lot of detective work because um, in some cases, some of these bands had broken up and they were not on the best of, of terms with one another. So I would have to sort of use my diplomatic skills to say, <laughs> hey, can you, I know you don't talk to Mr. X anymore, but have you got an email address for him or a cell phone number for him in your phone? And a lot of times they'd say, yeah, yeah, here you go. So I was able to, to piece together all the important players for each band, but it took me three and a half years to really? do all that. Yeah. I mean, it's an, it's an amazingly long book. Uh, there's so much information and there's just, and that's great. I think that's, what's great about it. It's not just like a little blurb here, a little blurb there. You're getting real deep into these bands and it's fascinating. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I did it in the oral, um, oral history format because uh, I didn't want it to be filtered through my perspective. It's not my story. I tell my own story in the beginning of the book, but this is all these bands stories. Yeah. So it was important for me that, that it's not me commenting, it's them telling their stories. And, you know, if you haven't read an oral history before, you know, it, it gives you a, you are there sort of feeling because you're hearing it in real time, even though in some cases it's 30 or 40 years later that they're telling you these stories. But, but what was fun, it was like being a film editor was I had to take all these different interviews and weave them together, hopefully in a narrative that would make it entertaining for you, the reader, you know, to, to follow along. You've also got the, uh, the Ska Boom podcast. I've had a chance to listen to a couple of episodes and it, it again, like everything else, it's, 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 uh, it's really interesting, different takes on, on Ska and also, you know, how people arrive at it. Like when we talked to in the beginning here that everyone has an arrival point at, right. at Scott. I just think that's, it's, it's so cool to, to, to hear those kinds of stories from, from even, you know, just normal everyday people who are experiencing something that, you know, I've experienced that you've experienced getting to know this kinds of music. Yeah. I love, uh, origin stories of any kind, whether it's, um, sports teams or comic book heroes, superheroes, <laughs> bands. I just love to hear why, what was it that made you decide this was the music that you were going to play? Why this instrument? Why, why those albums? Cause everybody's got, you know, you told me your your story, uh, you know, my story. I just love to hear those because it's, it's, there's a lot of commonality, you know, you and I don't know each other, but we had very similar yeah. musical experiences. It, and I just think it brings people closer together when you hear, hear that kind of stuff. It's like you, you're speaking a language that not everybody speaks. You know, you, I mean, you, you can relate to what I told you. And I totally relate to what, what you're saying. And when I was listening to some of the podcast episodes, uh, I was listening to the one you did about, uh, 
about the uh, the uh, the beat oh, girl, the beat girl. The beat girl. Yeah. Uh, I was listening to that and thinking, you know what? He's he's right. The beat girl was kind of hot. <laughs> I, I I mean, say what you will. Uh, you know, I had the T-shirt with her on it and I, I was attracted to, her, to a cartoon <laughs> and I felt like if I could find a girl that looks like her, I'll, I'll be very happy. But yeah, the beat girl story is is a great one. If you are a fan of the English beat, you know who the beat girl is. But nobody knew who she really was. And so um, that's the most recent episode of the podcast. I interviewed um, a woman who has done a documentary about who the beat girl really is. And her story is pretty interesting. And you learn some things about her that you might not expect to yeah. know. Well, Mark, it's, like I said, I, I really enjoyed the book. I'm gonna, I can't wait to read the second half of it. It's taken me a while to read the first half. But it's, it's really, really awesome. And if anyone is a fan of, uh, of ska music, this is absolutely an, an essential read. Thanks. I, I really appreciate uh, the chance to talk to you. And I, I appreciate you taking hours out of your life to read my book. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Absolutely. Mark, thank you very much and best of luck. Thanks very much. The name of Mark Wasserman's book is Ska Boom, an American ska and reggae oral history. Also check out the Ska Boom podcast. And thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to rate it, subscribe it. Share with all your friends. You can email me at backsatrock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.